Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Tomasetti Talks, where I am your host, Edward Tomasetti. Today is episode three. It, this will be our post-discussion forum episode, where we talk a little bit about some information that I wish could have been in the forum. Uh, I want to dive into a little bit more. Some questions that generated during and after the forum and really dig into some of those answers that I only got to scratch the surface of uh, the day of the live forum. So uh, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm excited. I got my Peruvian poncho on. I'm ready to go. So yeah, let's uh, dive in. Let me see if I can share my screen here. Uh, I do have uh, some slides that I would like to talk through uh, just to give you guys some more visuals. All right, awesome. Once this loads, we'll get right in. Um, there is uh, a couple different things I wanted to talk about today. I do want to talk about the tropical Andes. Uh, it is the, you know, the Andes are the mountain range, but when we get into it, we will see how that overlaps with some Amazon rainforest conservation issues. I do want to talk a little bit about the effects on wildlife and some different specific examples of species that are affected by the gold mining. This is something that was brought to my attention. It would be good to explore, and I, I totally agree. We will then get into some of the questions that generated from the forum and a little bit on the current conflict in Peru regarding the current government and different approaches to the gold mining. And we'll end off with a little glimpse of hope because we always need that. So just to get in, we're going to dive right into the tropical Andes here. Let me see if I can move this down, make this a little bit bigger. So ooh. don't guess what our first species is. There we go. All right, let's move this down here. Awesome. So I do want to talk about the tropical Andes because it is a biodiversity hotspot. And in order to be a biodiversity hotspot, you need to check the box for two criteria. One of them is having 1500 vascular plant species endemic to the area, so native. And you also have had to have lost 70% of that native vegetation population. So if we look at this map over here to the right, the dark gray area is what outlines that tropical Andes hotspot. You can see that it goes all the way straight through northern Peru, all the way through southern Peru and into the neighboring neighboring uh, countries. And I do want to talk about the tropical Andes a little bit just because one of the major threats does include illegal mining and its effects on wildlife. So just a little bit uh, about the the tropical Andes. The tropical Andes hotspot far exceeds the, the criteria to be a hotspot because it has 15,000 endemic plant species. And in some areas, it's had a loss of vegetation at a startling 95%. So it far exceeds the 1,570 that, that you need in order to be considered a hotspot. There is 36 recognized biodiversity hotspots throughout the earth. Uh, and it is most, most of the biologically rich yet threatened terrestrial regions. The, uh, I'm sorry, the tropical Andes does cover uh, an area the size of Spain. And like I said, it extends through many different countries, uh, a large portion of that being in Peru. And the region has the largest area of amphibian, bird, and mammal species and takes second only to reptile diversity. Now that is compared to other biodiversity hotspots, not as far as just overall world um, biodiversity that specifically talking about the hotspots here. And this is important because the east side of the Andes of, uh, especially in Southern Peru, is what outlines the west western border of the Amazon rainforest as you go down the, the the mountain from those the tropical Andes down into the different river basins that come down off the mountains uh, you get into full-blown Amazon rainforest and they overlap so a big thing is conserving this area and how important it is uh, to different vegetation and uh, different different wildlife species 
and to, to look at that a little bit more, um, we're going to look at a certain species, but one of the issues for the tropical Andes, like I said, was mining, but mining for copper, gold, silver, and other materials, minerals of, uh, affect large areas of this hotspot. And basically the pollution of the water and soil that come that come with those areas uh, of mining. So did want to talk about that. And because it is uh, a place that's looking to have he heavy conservation issues and efforts going on, we're going to look at some different species and how they are affected by the mining. And the first one, like you could have guessed, because goofy me, let's see it is the giant river otter. Let me see if I can make this a little bit smaller and move this out of the way. All right, awesome. So I wanted to talk about the giant river otter because it's really found nowhere else in the world besides some of the Amazon rainforest. And on the ICUN red list, it is labeled endangered and the population is decreasing. So definitely, of importance to conserve this population. Some different threats to the giant river otter are the energy production and mining. That's uh, a specific threat that the red list lists as one of the issues. Pollution is another pollution of the waterways because this species lives directly in the uh, riverbanks of the Amazon rainforest. And we know that mining is very prominent in those areas, those riverside mining operations and the pollution that gets into those waterways completely destructs their habitat and their source of, of food. We talked about the bioaccumulation of mercury and how it goes down or goes up the food chain and bioaccumulates and then the effects of mercury contamination in animals. We talked about how it affects the nervous system. Uh, it can attack or attack uh, motor skills and have different behavioral impairments, as well as being linked to um, loss of IQ. Now that was mainly in humans, but uh, other mammals process it, mercury the same way. So I definitely thought it was important to throw the giant river otters in there as a species that is directly affected because they are endangered, they are decreasing. And one of those big reasons is the illegal gold mining that's having effect directly on their habitat and then on their food source and what that has as an effect on, on them themselves. I am, uh, I do have a lot of notes for today just because I only had uh, a week to get some of this information down. So I'm just making sure that I don't leave you hanging with any of the information that I did want to share. All right, awesome. We're going to move on to where we will, uh, I did want to look at amphibians as a, as a group because many of them have high exposure to aquatic environments and their permeable skin makes them very susceptible to what is in the water that they are inhabiting and you know moving around in. They have unshelled eggs as well. So they're at high exposure for aquatic mercury contamination. And mercury contamination in amphibians through multiple studies has seen a decrease in food consumption and body size. They have been slower at capturing prey and have had decreased speed overall, like we talked about with the giant river otters, motor skills and behavioral inadequacies. It's the same thing seen in amphibians. Also increased mortality, which is gonna bring me on to um, this case of the Titicaya water frog that I came across. The Titicaca water frog inhabits Lake Titicaca in southern Peru. It's the only place that this frog lives where it is also labeled as endangered. And the main threats to it are pollution. And the pollution of its aquatic habitat is 
by two things, mercury contamination and then bacteria from human waste, which I thought was important to talk about because the human waste goes hand in hand with the illegal gold mining because of the state of poverty of the people that inhabit the area. There, there isn't sewage or a proper way to dispose of this. So human bacteria gets into the waterways. And like I said, just the, the state of poverty that these people live in, that is why they go and work in the mines. So the mercury contamination itself, and then the, the poverty state that these people live in really has an effect on the amphibians in, in this area. Um, I do want to make sure that, I, yep, critically endangered. Yeah, so how they figured this out too was randomly just 10,000 of, 10, of them appeared dead in 2016. Uh, sort of like showing up out of nowhere. They, people were like, why is this happening? And they came to the conclusion of mercury contamination uh, along with the bacteria contamination of the water by testing hundreds of the frogs. So we see them as a, a species that was directly affected by practices of illegal gold mining. Since I am uh, looking at some of the, the wildlife effects as a whole, I did want to talk about avian species. Uh, there's a lot of predator avian species in Peru, but also non-predatory uh, birds of Peru are also going to eat insects that live in aquatic areas or feed on aquatic uh, insects themselves. And like I said, it just goes up the food chain. So some motor deficits seem to affect birds because mercury contamination is directly related to flying. And this is hard because a bird's life cycle, you know, revolves around its ability to fly. That's how they have evolved to be so versatile. And if you take that away, it doesn't live the life that it should and it makes it very difficult for survival. Now, looking at this, I do want to talk about a research project by Piggy Shroom, who was a graduate student at Clemson University, who did mercury level research in the Madre de Dios area at the Los Amigos Biological Station where I was over um, this summer. She did this back in 2009. So just keep that in mind when we know that in 2009, it wasn't as big of a problem as it is now, the mercury contamination. It was still a big problem, but it's definitely gained traction. So the results that were seen then, I would hypothesize to be even greater now. And so she tested 88 birds of prey at Los Amigos for mercury contamination. And 81 of them had mercury levels above the safe limit for birds. And I thought that was just astonishing that that many in 2009 had high levels of mercury to be you know, that concerning. Some of the species that she looked at were king vultures, which is up here to the right the black collared hawk, which is to the bottom right, and the harpy eagle, which is right here in, in the middle. So just another group of animals that is affected by mercury contamination. I'll leave this here for now. I'll move myself in a minute. Another group I wanted to talk about was the felines because we did learn about charismatic species and I think that large, you know, wild felines are very charismatic and can gain some traction of concern because, you know, people can resonate with them. And during a, uh, some results of a study I did find, uh, they were looking at jaguars and they did look at jaguars because they are the apex predator of the Amazon rainforest. They, their base prey includes over 85 different species and it includes aquatic mammals, uh, crocodilian species, fish species. And uh, as the apex predators, they're not at risk 
you know, they're the apex predators. They're not really at risk for anything, but they are at risk for accumulating high concentrations of pollutions uh, that are biomagnified through the food chain. So directly I thought of mercury. So when looking at the study, I thought it was amazing to find out that the highest body burdens observed in Jaguars where gold mining activities were intensive, the data showed mercury levels uh, of an individual jaguar that was highest ever recorded in a wild animal. Now this was done in Brazil. It was not done in, in this particular jaguar was um, in Brazilian, Brazilian territory, but it was around areas that had the same uh, concerning effects of illegal gold mining. They use the same practices. They use, you know, mercury that contaminated the waterways. Um, so the aspects of the situation were similar. So I did wanna share that. The NT means they're nearly threatened uh, on the red list. I just wanted to know that just so you know their, their level as far as populations goes. Other high up on the food chain predators, uh, feline predators in the Amazon rainforest includes cougars, ocelots, margays and jaguarandis you know talking about them just because that like i said they're higher up on the food chain so they are at high risk for bioaccumulation of mercury margays are near threatened themselves margay is over here to the top right excuse me i wanted to share that because one of my most exhilarating wildlife experiences came this summer and it was with uh a moment I shared with the Margay and it will forever be close to my heart because of it. Down to the bottom right here is an ocelot, looks very similar to the Margay. They are very closely related, but an ocelot is definitely a lot bigger. And this picture that I covered up for a while, what is a jaguar? Now I didn't use one of those charismatic pictures of a jaguar because I wanted to show you this. This is my personal picture that we got off camera traps when we were in uh los amigos i did just want to mention the specific things that we were doing in los amigos because although i was on the primate research team i also helped out uh, on uh, mammal data collection and well there are mammals but we had a specific team for bat data collection we had uh, a birds team and we had uh, a herp group and all of those groups this year started taking mercury levels. I cannot say how you take the mercury level in different amphibians and uh, the herp, how the herp group did that. But I know for the bats, the birds, the other mammals and the primates that we did, we tested hair levels. So they were hair mer mercury levels. And I'm glad to see that gaining traction in scientific research. So we can really start to understand the effects uh, on different species. It's something that's gaining traction now. So we don't have an abundance of information on it, but I definitely wanted to look at some of these species so you can see, you know, it's easy to say that it affects wildlife, but how the motor skills, the contamination of the food chain and how the, you know, deteriorating motor skills can affect different species, including, including humans. So I would, like I said, all this information that I'm reviewing is close to my heart and it's something that I'm going to work on. So if there's any species that you want to talk about more, or if there's additional species that you know of in the area that you would like information on, please feel free to reach out to me. And I would, I would love to discuss some things further, but for now, we're going to move into a section where we will be looking at the questions that had come through on the day of the forum. I know that some of them I was not able to get through in the chat, but like I, like I promised, don't worry, we're going to get to them right now. Every single question that I received is going to get answered. Uh, there was a couple of conversations that I had after the forum that I do want to touch on. And um, yeah, I think I think I have some good information uh, for everyone. So I'm going to move forward. Move this down here. So the first question that came through that I did want to discuss are what are the mercury levels in the miners? 
And before I go ahead and just tackle that answer, I do want to talk about uh, Luis Fernandez. Now, Luis Fernandez is the executive director of the Wake Forest University Center or Centero de Innovación Scientifica Amazonica. So it is the Center for Amazonian Scientific Innovation. And uh, Luis Fernandez re does research initiative that examines impacts of artisanal gold mining, mercury contamination, and deforestation on natural and human ecosystems in the Peruvian Amazon. Fernandez has been conducting ecological research and the effects of gold mining for over 15 years. So this answer is going to look at many different things uh, that Fernandez has found through his research over that time period. And I did wanna, um, just give a little bit of information on him because a lot of his research is stuff I have referenced in uh, my research as far as, you know, what went into the forum and different aspects of the mercury contamination. A lot of things I learned were through his, his research. So I did want to give that background information. And one thing I do want to state before we look at the miners themselves is miners have a high exposure and are directly in contact with that mercury, but people miles downriver have been noticed to have higher levels due to bioaccumulation. I'm just really beaten in that mercury bioaccumulation in because it has effect, an effect on so many things, especially high up in the food chain. But studies show that seven out of 10 people downriver from the gold mines had mercury levels that were above the safe limit. So I did just want to point that out. But to directly answer your question, we're going to look at a couple of different studies done by Fernandez. And in 2009, he found that some miners had mercury level 20 times higher than the international worker safety standard. So that right there is, you know, grounds to be like, wow, that, that's a lot. As he continued research and had access to better equipment, he continued monitoring mercury levels and found some individuals had levels as high as 34 times higher. That was in 2013 as te his technology and monitoring systems were, were able to more accurately read the levels of mercury in people that those levels went up. And then in 2019, uh, Fernandez was stated what or was known stating that the scope and intensity of mercury contamination by artisanal gold mining in the Madre de Dios area is greater than previously thought. He stated that he believes miners could potentially have 100 to 1,000 times greater than the worker safety standard. So to answer that question, the mercury level in the miners is very significant. And I did want to put this, this wasn't a question, but I did want to talk a little bit about the concerning air levels. Cause when we talk about 20 times higher, 34 times higher, hundred times higher, you know, what really is that? What is the level that is safe? And that, that does fluctuate and change and is, is, is hard to get into for a short uh, podcast here. But I think I can give a little bit of context to know how great mercury contamination is when we break down a little bit of the concerning air levels. And in that, uh, we're gonna look at some of Fernandez's findings throughout that, you know, almost the same time periods because what he does is he'll go in with different reading devices and equipment and measure the amount of mercury in the atmosphere around places that burn the mercury off the gold. Now, sometimes miners do this in the field, where before they bring it in to sell, but a lot of times also they skip that step, step in the field, bring it to the shops and have the, the shops themselves burn the mercury off, weigh the gold and then um, pay them. So Fernandez found one shop where uh, in 2011, where the mercury level in the air averaged 450 micrograms per cubic meter of air. What the heck does that mean? I don't know. That means nothing to me until you put it into perspective that that is 22 times higher than the World Health Organization's occupational health standard. So the mercury in the air in 2011 that he recorded was 22 times higher than it should be. 
or than it was safe to be for workers. He also had spikes as high as 1000 micrograms per cubic meter, but his device was not reading correctly, so he didn't know how accurate that was. So then this is where it comes into perspective. In 2017, he went back and found that mercury vapor levels in the air around the gold shop exceeded, you know, the World Health Organization's occupational health standard uh, by a lot more than previously thought. Mercury vapor recordings top 2000 micrograms per cubic meter compared to a few years back when he recorded 450 times or 450 micrograms per cubic meter. And to put that into perspective, the Peruvian air quality regulations for the limit of mercury con contamination is two micrograms per cubic meter. So what it should be is two and what it is is 2000. This is when they are burning on that. But he did talk about how concerning that is because these, you know, when they were doing that, the fumes were just being uh, poured into the streets or they would be poured into, you know, neighboring rooms where the shop owner's family lived and, you know, just putting people at high exposure to these high levels of mercury in the air. So I just wanted to talk about that so we can see how high the different levels are, even when we're not talking about bioaccumulation as far as ingesting it through the food chain, we can breathe it and come into contact with it uh, as well. So the levels of mercury are high in the atmosphere, the soil, the water, animals, and people. So then moving on to our next question, uh, I had a couple people ask me about the statement about 30,000 miners losing their livelihood. And in that, I apologize that I wasn't clear because like I said, I had multiple people ask me, ask me the same question. The question is 30,000 legitimate miners lost their livelihoods or 30,000 illegal miners were arrested. If they were legitimate miners, why did they lose their job? So direct answer to this is they were illegal. Uh, the majority of the 30,000 miners that were arrested by Operation Mercury were operating illegally. Some of them did have legal permits, but the reason they were arrested was because they were operating outside the legal limits of their, their permit. You get a permit and the, you know, there's different guidelines and laws as far as, you know, what chemicals you can use how you're not supposed to put mercury into the ecosystem, how much of the forest you can cut down per day. And if you work outside those guidelines, you can be arrested. Now, if you're working inside those guidelines and you have your permit and you're doing everything correctly, Operation Mercury will not arrest you. They, you know, may show up and uh, sort of like how, you know, the health department shows up to restaurants just to make sure you're working within health guidelines. It's the same concept. So the 30,000 miners that Operation Mercury, or the 30,000 miners that lost their livelihood due to Operation Mercury were illegal. And as you can see here, here's a picture of them uh, arresting illegal miners, which this must have been a larger sting because usually you don't see 10 to teen in the teens of uh, people working together, they usually disperse a bit, but um, yeah, illegal would be would be the answer to that. And I'm sorry that that wasn't more clear the the day of the forum. Another uh, discussion that I had right after the the forum was a little bit about how I talked about Operation Mercury blowing up the mines, and we see this when. Operation Mercury conducts a raid, they go into the field, they find an illegal mining operation, arrest the individuals working, and then the mine sits there and how they handle that situation. They handle that situation by strapping dynamite to it, blowing up the engines that run the mine, and then burning down the living quarters for the individuals that were currently there working. And you know, some, you know, some actually a couple of people had the same initial reaction that I had and was like, what? 
like is that really is that really um you know is there not a better way to do that so i did just want to to talk about that a little bit because i asked my question um that itself and you know one of the reasons is the manpower it would take to dismantle and transport the materials back to the city where it can be disposed of properly or differently operation mercury has dispatched 1800 officers to investigate and patrol and raid these illegal mines but it's estimated that are over there are over 120 illegal miners operating the mines so that sort of answers the question as far as okay it's hard to get the material out how do they get it in they have a lot more people they are motivated to get the equipment out there because that is how they are going to make a living if someone is counting on something to support their family they're going to figure out a way to do it, it doesn't matter if it takes a lot of time it doesn't matter if it takes a lot of manual labor they're going to do it and the other thing to you know consider is operation mercury is dispatched to shut down that mine as fast as possible so it can move on to the next and in order to dismantle that mine you would need additional manpower uh, additional resources as far as boats and or motorcycles you know a lot of other resources would go into taking the mine out itself when operation mercury was first implemented there was a lot of riverside dwells and you know riverside operations going on and as they continued to raid and shut those down some of those well a lot of those operations dispersed in deeper into the forest uh, where it's hard to chart through the amazon rainforest is so dense i would describe it as you know you can't see 10 feet in front of you you might hear an animal 10, 15 feet away, but you have no idea where it is because the, the forest is so thick. It's so dense. And in order to venture through there, you're mainly doing it by foot, you know? So in order to dismantle it, get it all out, basically it comes down to time and resources for Operation Mercury and their goal to just shut down the mines as fast as possible. The other reason that they blow them up comes from Dr. Karina Gray. She is the individual that was appointed lead prosecutor for Operation Mercury that I talked about in the live forum. It is her way of making a statement that there is no room for corruption. Before Operation Mercury, police officers, army officers would go and shut down a mine and oftentimes would arrest the individuals working and they would end up with a fine. But these people working the mind would plea, arrest me and give me a fine, just please don't blow up my engine. They know that if they go, they pay their fine, they can get back to the mine, it's still intact and they can pick right back up where they left off. Or if they don't blow up the engine, someone else can come right back, you know, their son, their uncle, their cousin, you know, anybody can go. If the materials are there, they can just pick up right back up where they left off. And a lot of times these police officers were bought off to not blow up the mines. And this is Dr. Gray's method to say, no, no corruption's happening. I'm blowing it up. And so that is what that is what they've been doing. And it seems kind of crazy. You're like, how do they do this? What does this look like? You know, is the whole forest going on for you blowing up the forest? So I did want to show you what that looks like. Now, um, just um, a little heads up. There's some boom. It's a short video. It's about a minute long. So if you are someone that is um, triggered by um, loud noises or explosions, um, or you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable, or you just don't want to watch it. But just skip ahead uh, about a minute to minute and fifteen. The 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 video is a little bit shorter than a minute, so you should be good. But give you a couple seconds just to pause and skip ahead a couple seconds. But for the rest of you, I did want you guys to be able to see what this looks like.
ride. So I'm glad you got to see that and see what that looks like. I'm glad that these explosions don't end up burning, you know, acres and acres of forest. So that's good. As far as the effects on the ecosystem, I could not find much information. It was stated that the mercury being used is already in the ecosystem. So blowing it up doesn't do more harm. And the, the one thing that I would point out is, you know, blowing it up does scatter, you know, plastic, metal, stuff like that throughout that localized ecosystem area. So it definitely is going to have effects as far as, you know, just there's some plastic pollutants. It's not going to be biodegradable. Hopefully, as time goes on, maybe one of the things that Operation Mercury can implement is a cleanup crew that would, hey, that would, you know, get some jobs, people to go into areas that were previous mined and, and, you know, clean up those explosions. Or, you know, if there was funding, maybe they wouldn't have to explode these these mines let's see here so moving forward give me just one second here let's see i'm gonna pause right sorry about that brief interruption there i've been drinking a lot of water lately that was an unfortunate time for nature to call but Moving forward, uh, these next couple questions come from Ben, and uh, it took me a little bit to get the answers to. I wanted, I've reached out to him to make sure I had his or his questions correct because I, I only briefly touched on them the day of the forum, and I definitely wanted to be able to provide a, a better, more in-depth answer. And so his questions come kind of come in a couple different parts, so I'm going to break it down a little bit. And the first question is our gold mines in Peru primarily owned by foreign corporate entities or are they more operations controlled by local groups, criminal or otherwise? And to answer that straight up, most of the illegal gold mining going on is done by lo local groups. It is, it's often related to how do I say this? The drug industry. Um, cocaine is the, well, Peru is the second largest producer of cocaine behind Colombia. And they're very similar as far as their structure of, of who owns it. It's often local Peruvians that have more money or people that live there that have a little bit more money buy the equipment and then hire individuals to go out and do the mining themselves. There's not a lot of, you know, foreign entities pulling strings as far as the small artisanal illegal gold mining. Now, when you look at larger scale gold mining operations that are legal and, you know, operating more within the boundaries of the law, those have a lot more foreign involvement and, I'm definitely going to get into that because that's a major issue that goes into another aspect of one of your questions. But um, the mines that are causing a lot of the mercury contamination and harm to the ecosystem that we have been looking at, those are illegal local, you know, Peruvian citizens that are that are just trying to make a living. But their bosses and the people that put up the money and that are, you know, basically exchanging the gold are, are also Peruvians, uh, local Peruvians. So to get into another aspect of your, or another bit of your question, I was wondering the state ownership of gold mines. Oh, I was wondering if the state ownership of gold mines has been an issue in the past. I'm aware of the national nationalization efforts of other South American countries have led to foreign intervention, civil war, and general instability. So that part of the question also, I'm, I'm kind of gonna, you have a few different questions and basically 
my answer brings them all together. So the other question is related, how does gold mining drive conflict in Peru? Is there open conflict between government forces and insurgent groups or over control of the mining operations? Is money from illegal gold mining funding militant uh, political organizations or mostly criminal minded cartel type groups? Okay. So as far as the first part, the state ownership of gold mines, and there is state ownership of gold mines and that is primarily in the legal large scale golding, gold mining operations that are also paired with foreign entities. So for example, there is an operation, the operation is a joint ment well, one of the large scale gold mining operations is a joint venture between Newmont Gold Corp, which is US based. Uh, and then Aminas Buenaventura company that is Peruvian based and International Finance Corporation, which is also US based. Now, those three together uh, split ownership of one of the largest gold mines in Peru that is legal. They have very strict regulations as far as mercury. They don't use mercury. Um, they don't cut down the forest much this way. They do a lot of drilling and underground mines and they mine for all types of metals as far as gold, silver, copper, different things like that. So that up until now has been relatively stable. It hasn't led to more instability because that they've just worked with the Peruvian government and, you know, respected the uh, legal restrictions and operate that way. The illegal gold mining has not created much civil war and instability as far as that, because these are just everyday people just trying to make a living. There has been increased, you know, behavior, like I said, is the human trafficking and corruption and, and things of that nature. But it hasn't been, you know, like civil war type type of things, um, at least in the past. Now, related, how does gold mining drive conflict in Peru? Is there open conflict between government forces and insurgent groups? So basically to discuss this answer, we're going to look into the current conflict of Peru. And that's going to start with the current Peruvian president, uh, Pedro Castillo. That is the picture up to the top right hand of the screen here, uh, who is a 51-year-old Marxist union leader who took office late in July. Now, Castillo is the fourth president of Peru over the past year. And when I was in Peru was the same time the election was going on. So I was concerned at the um, political climate of Peru because Castillo has been linked to a lot of different groups of corruption, militant groups. Um, just, he has a, a track record and a history of, you know, working against the government. And he pledged before the election that if he lost, there would be blood in the streets. So it just goes to show you the mentality of what is behind the president of Peru right now. and. One of his main, his main push to become president was that he wants to bring money and a better lifestyle to impoverished areas of Peru and, um, you know, people that live in poverty, he wants to look out for, but his way of doing that, um, it has been has been sort of hard. So what he did is he rattled investors with campaign pledges to nationalize illegal mining and um, illegal product. Well, what was illegal mining? He's going to 
make it legal. And then also the production of hydrocarbons, the hydrocarbon industry and raise taxes. So basically he's taking everything that is illegal to do because of its effects on the ecosystem, make it legal so these people can make a living and then also higher taxes against the rich. And because of that, there has now been a large, a large conflict. Um, one thing I do want to, I do want to say is there was some conflict before, like the bottom right here. Um, this was a picture from President Martin Vizcarra's time. He was there from 2018 to late 2019 this was he he was very anti-illegal gold mining and this shows that there was protests going on for that so there always has been a little bit of give and pull uh but nothing has been crazy or nothing has been as worrisome as the the political climate right now that stir that um, President Castillo had when he uh, pledged to nationalize that had a domino effect and there's been a conflict stirrup that has claimed that environmental contamination linked to the larger legal gold mining operations uh, have led have led public protests uh, of the legal mines some legal mines are set to be shut down because they're being attacked by protesters and uh, community, communities are claiming that mines have leaked tailings into the headwaters and watersheds vital to the local farmers. Now, these companies reject any interference about environmental pollution. Uh, the company released a statement that said it will vigorously defend its position and take any action necessary to ensure that the rights of the company under Peruvian and international law are respected, basically saying, we, that is not true. We are operating safely, like we always have in the confinements of the Peruvian and international government. So in recent months, uh, miners, including uh, Numa and Buenaventura, have delayed projects and closed, and actually one of the largest silver mines has been closed. Canadian mine companies uh, have pulled back out of Peru and many other companies have seen significant stock decreases since the conflict began. Uh, there is no clear violation of mining right, or excuse me, let me back up. So that being said, President Castillo is basically starting a conflict between the legal gold miners and it's not being taken lightly because one, this is, you know, a legal, entity working and they state that it's a clear violation of mining rights and a blow to the country's stability. The country's stability is a big thing because the National Society of Mining, Petroleum and Energy has warned uh, Peru that of especially the country's, some of the country's most impoverished areas, they could lose up to 54,000 jobs uh, and millions in mining royalties. So his goal is to make money with illegal gold mines, but if they keep fighting the legal gold mining, you know, they're going to lose thousands of jobs that way. And about 2 million Peruvians depend on the mining industry. This is the legal, the legal uh, mining industry, uh, which posted a record $29 billion in exports through three quarters in 2021. So the, the achievements are at risk because investors will ask themselves which rules apply if you continue to have this conflict. We're doing it legally, we're gonna be shut down, they're doing it illegally, that's gonna be okay. And there is, there is a huge conflict going on. So uh, Peru's, um, Opposing Congress has been discussing uh, impeachment already, but right now it, it it's so unknown and, and it could go south very, very fast. So definitely a lot of current conflict 
the conflict in the past hasn't been too, too, you know, crazy. And um, like I said, so this picture here, I didn't address this picture. This picture here behind my face is a picture of the legal gold mining, how they use very big machinery uh, to excavate. And they basically dig, dig, dig deep, or they dig underneath. They have a certain amount of force that they can cut down, but that's it. Um, so they can't just choose to go wherever they want. So out of all that, you know, kind of negative information, I do want to end you with a little glimpse of hope because when we talked about things that we could do moving forward, a lot of people were discussing an alternative to mercury. That would be great. If we had an alternative to mercury, um, and we didn't have to, you know, deforest as much, we could make this legal gold mining legal so people can make a living. So the glimpse of hope that I came across is a group of miners in the Philippines has demonstrated that borax, when used as a flux for smelting gold out, heavy metal concentrates, is an effective and safer substance for mercury. Now we will have to explore what those, you know, effects are, but if this can be a safer alternative, that is going to be great. And that's definitely something I'm going to look into a little bit more. So with that, I want to say thank you. Thank you for hanging in there and listening today. Uh, it was a little bit, little bit rocky. I didn't have as much time to, to prepare and practice, so I apologize for that. But I'm going to continue working on this. It's not going to stop with this class. And uh, I appreciate the platform and the opportunity to share this information with you. Uh, I did want to let you know that do something today that your future self will thank you for. I always try to leave with a positive, with a positive quote um, and some positivity for the day. And like I said, this will be paired with a blog post that will get posted to Tom Studies Talks WordPress blog. And like I said, you all have my contact information. It's out there. Uh, so please don't hesitate to use it if you want to continue that conversation or uh, you know, just discuss a little bit more to learn a bit, a little bit more about, about the situation. So thank you so much.